For millennial, we have always known that the arts change us in profound ways. And it's only in recent human history that we've really marginalized the role of the arts in our lives. And so I totally love that the arts are entertaining because that brings joy into our lives. But what we now know is that the way that we are physiologically and evolutionarily wired, the arts are not a nice to have. They're actually a human imperative for our really very survival. Welcome to Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's, a patient-centered nonprofit organization. Your host, Meryl Comer, is a co-founder, 24-year caregiver, an Emmy Award-winning journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Slow Dancing with a Stranger. This is Brainstorm, and I'm Meryl Comer. The classic adage, art for art's sake, is about to be enhanced as the emerging science of neuroaesthetics offers proof of the health and healing benefits to our brain and bodies as we participate in the arts. Our guest today is Susan Magsiman, founder and director of the International Arts and Mind Lab Center for Applied Neuroaesthetics at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She is also co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Your Brain on Art. Welcome, Professor Maximin. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Susan, please introduce us to this cultural shift from the arts as entertainment to the new science of neuroaesthetics. So neuroaesthetics is the study of how the arts and aesthetic experiences measurably change our brains, bodies, and behavior. And I think importantly, how this knowledge is translated into specific practices that can advance our health and well-being, our learning, our flourishing, the way we come together as a community. So we call the science neuroaesthetics, but we're calling the field neuroarts. I think what's extraordinary is for millennial, we have always known that the arts change us in profound ways. And it's only in recent human history that we've really marginalized the role of the arts in our lives. And so I totally love that the arts are entertaining because that brings joy into our lives. But what we now know is that the way that we are physiologically and evolutionarily wired, the arts are not a nice to have. They're actually a human imperative for our really very survival. Just to pull back for a moment, we are born into this world with over a hundred billion neurons. And those neurons are really there to be connected to each other through a process called neuroplasticity. And the way that we bring the world in is through our senses. It's the only way that we can do that. So these extraordinary mechanisms of sound and sight and smell and touch and hearing. And I think now scientists are saying there's even probably as many as 50 plus sensory systems yet to be discovered in the human body is how we bring the world in. But importantly, how those neurons get connected at a synaptic level. In your book, you say we're wired for art. Can you describe how different art forms engage the brain in specific ways? Let's start with music that infuses multiple parts of the brain. The baseline core knowledge around neuroaesthetics that I think is really interesting for people to understand is that when you're bringing in these sensorial experiences through music, or through dance, or through taste, through food, through all of the ways that the arts or aesthetic experiences engage us, those are some of the most highly salient experiences 
And saliency in terms of neuroscience is kinds of experiences that are important to us emotionally and the range of emotions and also practically. And so those salient experiences are the kinds of experiences that create those tight neural pathways that process throughout our brains, but also connect to all these other systems in our bodies. So music, as an example, is really a fascinating area. And it turns out that music is the most studied art form. And what we know about music is that when we lay down what we might consider to be these autobiographical songs or sounds or symphonies or lyrics, initially that information goes to our short-term memory in the hippocampus. But the power of those salient songs, like I can still think of Stevie Wonder songs or Carole King songs or songs of my age where they were so important to me, so saliently emotionally important that what my brain did was disseminate that information in multiple parts of my brain. So near the limbic system, in the auditory cortex, in the prefrontal cortex. So as I age and I grow older, and maybe my hippocampus is not working well, either because of age degeneration or neurodegeneration around different diseases like Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia, my brain will still recall that song when I'm triggered because it was so important to me. It's actually been stored in multiple parts of my brain. I think that's extraordinary. Susan, is the brain's engagement different when we write a report for work versus writing poetry for pleasure? Yes. We're beginning to see through functional MRI and other kinds of non-invasive imaging that different tasks that we do use different parts of the brain. And creative expression, which is how I generally define the arts, uses different parts of the brain depending on what the art form is. And so in the case of poetry, we know that poetry actually engages similar parts of the brain that music making does or lyric creation or singing does. And so that's a part of the brain that's around language acquisition, which is very different than the cognitive rational skills that you might use to write a report where you're really trying to think about syntax or exactly how you want to articulate something in a more tactical or operational way. It's very different than when you're creating something that's lyrical. And I think that makes sense. You know, poetry and lyrics often have a rhyming component, not always, but there's certainly metaphor and symbol that's tied into that. And that's often also true in the kinds of songs or lyrics that get created. Years ago, I ran a campaign called The Rock Stars of Science, and I turned scientists into rock stars. What I didn't know is that many of the researchers were also musicians. Now, are they using the same side of the brain when doing research versus doing their music? Well, first of all, that was a brilliant campaign. And I think we need to bring that campaign back. I think it's really as relevant, if not more so than ever, when you think about the collaborations between researchers and artists, all forms of art, and how they really need to and are collaborating together to use interdisciplinary approaches to understand what's happening when we are using an art form. And there's lots of really beautiful examples of that right now. I think scientists have gotten a bad rap in a way where I think sometimes the general public thinks that science is not creative and not innovative and doesn't require the same kind of creativity. But creativity 
shows up in lots of different forms. And scientists are very creative. They're brainstorming, they're in flow, they're working to really figure out work in ambiguity. So in these liminal unknown spaces, but they also use the parts of their brain that are really focused on more rational or cognitive computational kinds of activities. And I would say that's also true for artists. Artists are also thinking about computational issues as part of what they do. So I think when we've limited and simplified, sometimes oversimplified, what we mean by creativity or who can be creative or who is an artist or who can make art, we've mitigated a lot of these definitions and we've sidelined it to say, if you're not good at it, if you're not talented, if you're not creative, or if you don't fit this particular stereotype, you shouldn't be doing it. And that this idea of being proficient at it is the only value. But in fact, the research is showing us that when you use and create art in any form, whether you have proficiency or not, there's huge benefit depending upon what you're working toward. So I'll give you three examples. One is dance and Parkinson's. You don't have to be a great dancer to have wonderful benefit to gait, mood, cognition, and also sleep when you are dancing using rhythm and movement and also synchronicity with other dancers. And that can even be happening on Zoom. We also know that singing and Alzheimer's doesn't require you to be good at it to recall and recollect and come back to a radical presence, if even for a moment. And we also know when people who have been in traumatic situations, who are experiencing PTSD, are able to release those emotions through expressive writing, or drawing, or painting, they have a very large release of cognitive load and also lower cortisol. And those processes begin to help to heal those kinds of issues that have really been difficult to get at through all the wonderful medical kinds of traditional things that we know about. So this is how you can now begin to scientifically say that the arts and aesthetic experiences measurably change the body, brain, and behavior and connect that to advancing health and well-being. Correct. Absolutely. And the science is only getting stronger. And there's so many people that are already using the arts. And as we know more about these different neurobiological mechanisms, evolutionary mechanisms, and also look at these different types of diseases and disorders in physical health, but also thinking about well-being, so prevention. And I think the mother load is prevention. I think the more we can start with young children and begin to talk about brain health and the use of these experiences for resiliency, for creativity, for creative problem-solving, decision-making, self-regulation. And that's something that we don't really do in schools. We don't value this work. Arts have come out of schools and really have left children without the capacity to create these kinds of skills that we really need to regulate and, I think, thrive in a very complex, changing world. It's very upsetting to see that the arts, as an essential part of the educational curriculum, have often been abandoned with school budget cuts. Is the developing science of neuroaesthetics building a compelling case for the role of arts in brain health and healing young minds? Yes, I believe that we are literally at a cultural shift where the general public is really beginning to understand that, like sleep, 
nutrition, exercise. These arts and aesthetic experiences are an essential part of human wholeness and human wellness, like exercise, sleep, and nutrition, has to begin at an early age to build those strong neural pathways. And this work has been really ginning up in large part to people like Renee Fleming and Francis Collins in the United States. Also, I would say the NEA and other organizations like Americans for the Arts in the U.S. and then globally, there's many partners. The NeuroArts Blueprint was launched four or five years ago to really begin to try to build this momentum. But in schools, in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, we had the science that said this kind of experience was really great for kids and that the earlier you started, the better. So we made some progress in going from child care to child development. And now you see four-year-olds getting early learning and sometimes three-year-olds. I think we have to come back to this conversation about why the arts in schools I think we need to make stronger arguments, and now I think the science is even stronger. And if you look to California, California just passed something called Proposition 28, and it's a groundbreaking proposition that offers a billion dollars a year to bring the arts back into schools. And the initial round is to bring in an arts educator in every school in California. And under-resourced communities actually get a little bit more money to be able to make sure that there are the tools and the supplies and the training. And so the training that we're talking about in California weaves in the brain development, weaves in the neuroaesthetics, so that every teacher in California, including the arts-related teachers and the superintendents and principals and leadership, understand this new lens of why the arts are not just an entertainment or an enhancement or something that prepares you for civic life, but that it's an imperative on how we learn. And so we're really looking to California to set a standard here. And other states are also beginning to do different types of things to help think about the educational aspect of brain health, brain development, and the role of neural arts so that we start to bring that forward. And just want to make this point, there's great data that shows when we understand how our brains work on arts and aesthetic experiences, we make different decisions and we make healthier decisions. And that work has been shown through epidemiological work. So it's not projecting or predicting what might happen. Epidemiology work really shows you what did happen. And it just frames that looking at all the different variables that might influence us. What are those actual behaviors that have changed? Susan, you made the point earlier that the arts are too often intimidating for most of us to actively pursue. If the goal is to incorporate the arts into our lives for well-being, what concrete recommendations do you give people to optimize brain health? Yeah, that's a great question. What we talk about in the book is something called an aesthetic mindset. And that's four things. One is curiosity, being curious about the world around you and these different kinds of arts and aesthetics. The second is playful exploration. And that's doing things and exploring these arts experiences without judgment. So not trying to make the perfect piece of pottery or the perfect painting, but the imperfect painting. And to not judge it, but to see what processes and what emerges for you through those experiences. And then bringing in the sensorial world around us. I think we've optimized for productivity since the Industrial Revolution, and we've become so transactional that we don't move through our worlds 
with an idea of transcendence. And so what are the lights? What does it smell like after it rains? How do you experience all these sensorial experiences and opening yourself to that? And then the last is exploring being both a maker and a beholder and really understanding more about how that makes you feel. And so those are four very easy guidelines. I always say start with where you are. I can't sing. I sing in the shower every day. I sing in the car to the radio. Doodling turns out to be an amazing activity for focus and attention and information retrieval. My husband and I dance every Friday night just because we think it's fun. You can take nature walks. Nature walks are one of the most immediate ways to really lower cortisol and also sharpen clarity. And that's really just with 20 minutes. So what I say is experiment with things that you think you might enjoy for 20 minutes a day. And we have people writing us now saying, I started an art date night, or I've started an art club, or I'm starting to remember what I used to do when I was a kid. And I'm revisiting those kinds of things that I put aside as I grew older. And colleges and universities are finding the arts to be an incredibly powerful tool for bringing youth together, but also for managing stress and anxiety. So we're seeing lots of different ways that people are entering into the space. Our guest, Susan Magsimum, founder and director of the International Arts and Mind Lab Center for Applied Neuroaesthetics at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. In part two of our conversation, we'll explore how technology and artificial intelligence are best used to advance the evolving neuroarts blueprint. That's it for this edition. I'm Errol Comer. Thank you for brainstorming with us. Our team is on a mission to help you stay up with the latest scientific breakthroughs, from new therapies to technologies on early diagnosis and personal brain health advice from well-known experts using an equity lens that promotes brain health for all. Now, we'd like to hear what's on your mind. What are the topics and guests you'd like to hear featured on Brainstorm? Send your comments to brainstorm at usagainstalzheimers.org. Subscribe to Brainstorm on your favorite podcast platform and join us on the first and third Tuesday of every month.